Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Sinn Féin's motion calling for the new National Maternity Hospital to be built on land fully owned by the state is passed in the Dáil. The plans are already approved, but what will the political fallout be? As the World Meteorological Organization's annual report finds four climate records have been broken in the last year, what about the cost of climate action or inaction? And government research claims that workers can save hundreds of euros every year by working from home, but is it all it's cracked up to be? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Following a dramatic few days in the National Maternity Hospital controversy, Sinn Féin's motion calling for the hospital to be built on state land was tonight passed in the Dáil. Two Green Party TDs went against the party whip and voted in favour of the motion, while the government abstained, leaving the coalition parties with a bare majority if they are to be disciplined for their decision. Well, how will this impact on coalition relations? Here in studio to discuss is public affairs consultant and former senior political advisor, Jared Howland, former Socialist Party TD and member of ROSA, the socialist feminist movement, Ruth Coppinger, Fianna Fáil Senator, Lorraine Clifford-Lee, and political correspondent for Virgin Media News, Gavin Riley. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Gavin, to you first, the motion tonight by Sinn Féin in favour of building this hospital on state land was passed. Uh, the big thing is, though, the fallout for the coalition, because these plans were already approved by Cabinet. Uh, passed very comfortably as well, because the numbers, when you just look at, look at the scoreboard, uh, the numbers 56 votes in favour of the Sinn Féin motion, calling for the government to go back to the drawing board and seek the full compulsory ownership of this land. Only 10 TDs voting against those who are broadly happy with the, the ethos as it currently stands, or maybe some question marks about religious influence and broadly being comfortable with that. 69 abstentions, of course, all of those coming from the government benches, uh, but two green dots in the middle of the sea of blue bulbs of the extensions, those two being Nasser Hurgan and uh, Patrick Costello of the Green Party. The Green Party Parliamentary Party, without those two, is meeting as we speak to decide what sort of sanctions should be levied against them. And it is worth bearing in mind that this is not Nasser Hurrigan's first time in breach of the whip. Back in 2020, uh, on the cusp of the summer break, she voted in favour of some opposition amendments to a tenancy law. At the time, the punishment was that she was denied speaking rights or speaking time in the door for two months. As this is a second infraction, there will probably be an expectation that they'll have to levy some higher punishment. But if they were to do what the other coalition parties would do, which would be the, the tactic of uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, would be to uh, completely suspend the whip from that person for six months, then the coalition's numbers in the door would actually be quite precarious because it would mean that between Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Greens, you would be down to 80, which is literally the bare minimum that you would have in the Dáil, while you can still call it a maximum. 159 TDs vote in divisions, so 80 is the bare numbers mm. for a maximum. There would still be some independents who would ride to the government's defence if there ever was a full confidence vote or the danger of the rug being pulled. 
but it would mean that things are a little bit more precarious, particularly, as I'm sure we'll discuss later in the programme, when there are other contentious votes to come later this year as well. Yeah, the way this all played out as well, Lorraine Clifford Lee, I mean, you know, people looking on saying, you know, politics is a cynical place, but it was a cynical move by government abstaining on this vote when it had been passed by Cabinet. And we had so many members of government coming out saying, you know, this is great. Look, it's, it's watertight legally. We need to get ahead. We need to build a hospital. But then when the opposition come out and they say, you know what, we want to vote to build this on, on state land, the government choose to abstain. Well, we are building it on state land. It's a leasehold for 300 years. That is yeah. state, state well, ownership. And I read, actually, if you could let me just complete the point, I read the motion. There was lots of really good things within that motion that uh, government is supportive of. And I, I don't think it would have been helpful to divide people tonight on it. Oh, right. So is that why you think the government abstained on it? Because they agree with a lot of what's contained within it? Of course, there's lots of good things contained within the wording of the motion. It's a very long motion if you read it from, from start to finish. Um, I'm not a TD. I wasn't there for the vote tonight. Uh, but that would be my interpretation. So it wasn't it. political face-saving or, or, or to, to run the risk of what did happen where you had two government TDs coming out and saying we'll, we'll vote we, we, Sinn Féin on We that. knew from early in the day that that was going to be the situation, that there would be a vote tonight. Yeah, but I'm sure, you know, no one wanted that vote to happen. That's what was going to happen until the rural independents got in the way on all of this. Um, you know, Ruth, on this, we've the Green TDs, Nasa Horgan and, and Patrick Costello, you'd share their views. Um, essentially for them, though, it's all been in vain, hasn't it? Well, I think uh, that what happened over the last few days is a really poor reflection on the Green Party and their role in government. I think the most Green TDs got elected on a young, progressive repeal vote. They rode the repeal wave. That was certainly the case in Dublin West, where Minister Roderick O'Gorman would have been elected on you know, the basis of marriage equality repeal. And what they have voted for, with the exception of, of those two, is the exact opposite. They have actually made it, you know, it's not separation of church and, and state. Absolutely. It's yes. not, please don't we interrupt. Have, we, we have it's to not stop public. with Ruth It's not point, public Lorraine. and it's not secular. And, you know, we, we can rehearse all of the arguments. And I think that uh, about 2017, Eamon Ryan himself said, and, and, and I quote, that the National Maternity Hosp Hospital should involve not the creation of a lease arrangement, but rather the transfer of ownership of the site to the state so that the state is in no uncertainty or lack of clarity on the ownership. So they've broken yeah. their he, own. He was, on, he was on the show with us and, and he said when I put that to him, the way in which he you know, spoke out against that in 2017, he said, look, you know, the nuns didn't want to sell the land, so that's it. And that's why we have to make these decisions and this hospital is badly needed. We did ask um, Green Party uh, TD spokesperson to come on the programme tonight. They are in that meeting um, that Gavin talked about. What do you think, um, Jared Howland, just to, to, to bring you in on this, is going on behind closed doors at that um, Green Party meeting tonight? Well... I would suppose some Green Party TDs have a sense that this uh, is just a prelude to the really crucial test of strength for the Green Party in government, which is uh, when their carbon budgets are published in, in detail, probably in, in July. And everything that has happened to the Greens hitherto will be as nothing compared to that titanic struggle that is ahead. Uh, it is uh, peculiar politics that two of them would peel away uh, before that event, which will require all their strength, 
Uh, and all of those people who uh, are applauding uh, Patrick uh, Costlow and Nessa Horrigan tonight uh, for defying the Green Party, they're the people who are waiting to pounce on the Greens when those uh, carbon budgets but, are published. Can't you see it from, from their point of view? And, the, and, you know, they've been very forthright about it. Um, mm. NASA and Patrick, they, you know, they're voting with their, their conscience on this one. Mm. And they feel they couldn't go back to the doorstep and, and look for votes without voting that, that hurricane, way. It's my local TD. And I have to say, I personally like her and I politically respect her. And I've no doubt as to her passion, sincerity and, 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 and commitment. Uh, whether, given that the fact that the government had decided. There was clearly uh, the numbers in the doll to push this through, and it was happening anyway. Whether this is the best use of political capital, mm. given what the Greens are about to face, that's the judgment call two of their deputies have made. The others in that room behind those closed doors tonight are going to have to make their judgment. And the question in my mind is, apart from losing the whip, will Patrick Costello also be asked to vacate the chair of the uh, Budget Oversight Committee. And I remember as previously Dennis Nocton, when he lost the Fine whip, he was airlifted out of the chair of the Oireachtas Committee and held instantly uh, by, by Enda Kenny. I so think, let's see what happens I, I tonight. think you're underestimating, however, how big these issues are among young people and women. And I think that those two deputies, I can't speak for them, but I'd say that that's a huge part of why they took that decision. Because... I think that the government, I think the political establishment and the medical establishment completely underestimated the chasm that exists between ordinary people, working class people and the church. You know, by bringing forward this deal in the first place, they should have realised five years ago when this first was publicised by, it has to be said, Dr. Peter Boylan and the stance he took. Mm. And they should have pulled back. Instead, they, they've been forced to go back, go back, go back you know, go back yeah. and, and, and renegotiate. Is, and this is a, a religious order that divested from St. Vincent's holdings in April. Not a hundred years ago, not one years ago, not one year ago, not even a month ago. That, that and, and the idea that this is a secular organisation. It is a secular okay, organisation. Or that it yeah. leases public land just won't wash. With it, it is a secular organisation. Isn't the point true that, you know, this vote in itself, it's kind of shown the, the, gov the Greens, the Green Party TDs in this case, showing the government up that if you're young uh, and, and you are progressive in their view, you have concerns and they are largely ignored within government. I'm young and I'm progressive. And you're in I haven't fall, been, though. That's the difference. Well, you see, you're not progressive. You're I am progressive. Fall. Excuse me. I had campaigned as hard as you have for women's rights and for LGBT rights in this country. So I won't let you put that tag on me. People I have aren't going to forget to know posters being held up Lorraine. by half of the Fianna Fáil ministers. That's the reality. Let Lorraine speak here. I am very liberal on these issues, and I think this is a huge leap forward for women's health. There will be a state of the art secular public hospital providing outstanding care for the women of Dublin and beyond. And that's the point. Right. And it needs to be built and uh, built very rapidly. Um, about the Green Party meeting taking place tonight, Gavin, and the decisions that will be made within that party about sanctions, um, what's likely to happen there? You mentioned Nasa Horkin and uh, back in 2020 taking mm -hmm. that stance against housing legislation and she lost speaker rights. Uh, what would be 
the move here that that maybe with Joe, look, we, we have to kind of penalise you in some way, but do they have to go to a certain point and not go beyond it? There, there's a balance to be struck because obviously there's precedent set by what they did to Nasa Hurrigan and also to Minister Joe O'Brien, who also refused to vote against that bill back in 2020. <clears throat> and what they did then as, at the time was the two-month suspension. So you could argue because this is Patrick Costello's first infraction that the consistent thing to do for him would be the two-month suspension, perhaps for Nasa Hurrigan, because this is not the first time that she's breached the, the instructions of the whip, that she would maybe have to go a step further. Maybe it might be a full withdrawal of the whip for a certain period of time. But there is also a school of thought among the other coalition parties that there has to be something of an example made of this because, you know, Jared mentioned the votes there's going to be on, on carbon budgets in the future. There's also other more contentious stuff like, you know, the proposed ban on the selling of industrial turf coming down the road in a few months as well. Those are going to be very dicey votes where you're going to want to have as much ballast in your armory as possible. And you won't want to be entertaining the idea that people could willy-nilly decide to break party ranks and get away with a little bit of a smack on the wrist. And one uh, minister in another coalition party said it this evening, that there is a contagion effect, that if a Green Party TD was to break ranks over something for which the government is taking serious political flack and all they get is a slap on the wrist, then what's to discourage another TD from another party doing the same thing when it mm. comes to a, an issue that they find emotive, whether it's turf or, or mica or something else? And they're worried that the, the whole cohesion of the cabinet could be undermined if the Greens are getting off lighter for infractions that others would be penalised for. Yeah, what, what about this um, um, instability and what, mm. what it does to the coalition parties right now? So what's happened is because the government is proportionately more, represent, more dependent on independent votes, which are fairly reliable, by the way, have no doubt that there's a clear majority in this door that doesn't want an election. The turkeys won't vote for Christmas. So, you know, this talk of instant instability or grave instability is overdone. But what it does mean is, because some independent TDs, their votes are now more necessary, more valuable, more often. The price of those votes has just gone up tonight. Okay, so, I mean, what happens um, in this case? I mean, the whole idea about sanctioning TDs and all of this, do you think, um, Lorraine, like that it's it's the right thing to do or, or the whole idea around it is a bit archaic? What do you think, especially on a vote like this where people do feel very strongly about it, you know, from... People feel strongly about it. On like both sides, and they have on both sides. Mm. And, and clearly, in the case of these two TDs, they can't say with all their conscience that they cannot um, vote with government on, on this matter. People feel passionate about a lot of votes. It's not just this issue. Um, that's how governments work, is through cohesion and sticking together and getting a lot of really good things through. And that's that's how uh, government systems work and that's how democracy works. So tough. And it's a, it is a bit ironic that they allowed a free vote or whatever when the whole repeal debate was going on. You know, in the Dáil, all of the parties allowed their TDs to vote whatever way. But when it comes to clamping down on, on something. It, clamping it's a bit down different. on what routes? What has been clamped so, down on? Well, nearly been, every clinician, every midwife, on. every doctor in the country is in support of this. Please don't exaggerate. There's a huge uh, number Nearly of everyone I say. But on this and where this is all going now, um, Ruth, do you believe anything can be done at this point? Um, you're among those who are out protesting and you've been very vocal uh, against those plans that have now been cleared by Cabinet. Is yeah. all of this, though, essentially, it's a done deal. It's, it's been rubber stamped now after, after two weeks of, of, of it being discussed and, and played out. Is that... Oh, obviously, the Cabinet have now taken now. the decision, you know, and they're going to plough ahead. And I think that that's probably what's the most likely outcome. So the battle may have been lost, but actually there's been a few revealing things because 
while on the one hand, you could say it has set back separation of church and state. On the other, I think that there's going to be an increased vigilance on any decisions that are made now with regard to future health care, with the role of the church in health, in education. A stand has actually been made because of this debate that's taken place. And I think that they'll be very reluctant to make those mistakes again. This was a test. It was the first maternity hospital being set up since repeal and on the 10th anniversary that's coming up of Savita's death. Yeah. And it's been failed, but I think actually you, it will strengthen the issues. I mean, do you think that was a test that you sort of can't go to Cabinet and say, these are the plans, we'll sign off on them? That, I would you know, argue you, you, you do have to go through the processes. There has to be seen to be transparency. You will have to go before Oireachtas committees. And when there are questions there, those questions need to be answered, Lorraine. I would argue that actually this is a step forward um, for the separation of church and state. You have uh, two... Uh, religious-run hospitals that are now completely secular as a result of this. And it's actually been a huge step forward. Um, so I think in future, um, decisions need to be aired. It was good that we had the the space to look at the documents. There were seven um, documents published in the, in the space of two weeks. Uh, we had a number of uh, very long um, health committee meetings as well. And that ty type of debate and, and deliberation, was charade, though, it wasn't a charade. What because they were actually, trying to do was say, we, we, we had our questions answered now and now we can go ahead. A lot ahead. of people actually yeah. did have their questions answered. But I know that, it doesn't seem to it, it is an interesting one, Gavin. Like, were, I mean, there were there government tactics at, at play here to a certain extent? Was all of this going to happen anyway? Let it all play out, let people vent and then have people grow tired of it and we move on and and we, we, we pass it if and that, that's it and that, the hospital gets built. If that was the strategy, I don't know if it was a very effective one because all, all they've done is sanction two weeks of full-throated national debate and at the end half of the country still isn't happy about it. So I don't know if this was an if it was intended for people to blow off steam and let it all to blow over. I think it's it's failed fairly spectacularly on that front, particularly if it is going to mean that the coalition itself is weaker in, in the dole in future. Um, I... Don't know really what the, the ultimate strategy was because, I mean, even the, there seemed to be slight incohesion within government around whether they were open-minded to making changes. You know, there was talk in, in one of the newspapers last Friday about the idea of a legal codicil and Jennifer Carr McNeil, who you know you've had in the programme, talking about whether there might be some value in that or not. And as far as I'm aware, that completely blindsided the Department of Health, the lead department for a this whole project. A is something you put on a will, not a well, commercial agreement. Well, nonetheless, there was, there was discussion about it and it totally blindsided the government department responsible for this deal when it was reported. And Micheál Martin then that very morning at a press event in Kildare saying that he didn't really see the value of adding a codicil when he didn't think that there was anything to clarify in yeah. the first place. So okay. if there was nothing worth clarifying or nothing needed amendments, Really, no, what well, the actually, purpose was? Three differences. And I know, I know, you've stated publicly that you're in favour of the hospital um, being being built, um, uh, the, the National Maternity Hospital go, going ahead and being built on the St Vincent's grounds. Um, but where do you think it's all going to go from here now? It's going to go nowhere soon. Uh, this hospital won't be built for quite some time. Uh, so an important decision has been made, but the state's capacity to build anything significant quickly uh, is hitherto nil. Uh, so what will happen between now and the election? What will the contractual state of this project be at the election? What will parties going into the election say about that matter then? And what view 
if, if, if any, will people take in that context? So it seems likely to be over, but it's not certain. And all I can predict is the next chapter in this is, is, is going to be fairly slow and blank and limited. And uh, in the great Irish tradition, not much is going to happen soon. And very quickly, by the way, and NASA Harrigan has pointed this out, the business case for the hospital hasn't yet been signed off. So there is no government sanction or no official confirmation that this is value for money and that they think it can actually go ahead. They've approved it in principle. But the liberty okay. practice All right, we'll have to away. see what happens. That one uh, billion euro plan and whether it's in the hands of a, a new government. Well, in other news today, Garthi have released without charge five of the 10 men who were arrested this morning in relation to an investigation into League of Ireland match fixing. Well, just before we came on air, I spoke to football correspondent for the Irish Sun, Owen Cowser. I asked him what we know about those arrests and the investigation so far. They were all arrested this morning. This is part of an investigation which was started back in 2019 on the back of a report from the FAI to the Gardaí who had received um, a report from UEFA themselves that there would be irregular betting patterns on a number of games um, involving League of Ireland clubs. That, that, that investigation started in 2019. You may remember in January 2020 that there was a house that was searched and um, a sum of cash betting paraphernalia, as was described, and a stun gun were taken at that case. But this is the first time as part of this investigation that people have been arrested. I understand two of them are current League of Ireland players and seven of them in total are players. So as part of that investigation since 2019, where, where did it focus? What did it, were detectives looking at in that time period before they made these crucial arrests this morning? Now, well, this this all started with UEFA. UEFA have a unit which monitors betting patterns from all around the world, and basically, what they're looking for is that when a, when when the betting market skews the wrong way compared to how things could go. For instance, like at the at the end of a game in the live market, a, a late goal, the the odds should get longer the longer the game goes on, but in some of these games, the odds got shorter. That actually certainly happened in a the case of Atlone in 2015, where the FAI did actually try and ban players, but one of the players took his case to the Court of Arbitration and Sport and had it overturned. In this case, it, I believe it was more to do with the number of goals scored, um, bookings, red cards, and issues like that. So they were looking at that. The fact that it's taken so long, they've been going through the paperwork, they've been monitoring phone, or not monitoring, they took phones, looked through them, looked at bank accounts, so, so they've taken a long time to do this, but in the past, there's always been an issue when there's these issue, these stories have come up that you, it's very difficult to prove because a mistake on a football pitch, players make mistakes all the time. The best players in the world make mistakes. So you have to be able to prove a paper trail. So that's what they've spent the last two and a half years working on. So Owen, with all of this, what reaction has there been from the sporting body, from the League of Ireland and the FAI to it? course, they're looking at the reputation of the league with all of this investigation going on. Yeah, um, the FBI issued a statement this morning. Uh, it was very short. It just said they noted what had happened, reaffirmed they have zero tolerance towards match fixing and said they, could, they have no further comment to make. Uh, it is an issue they do take very seriously. I know uh, Fran Gavin, the integrity officer in the FAI, has been going around clubs just he does this every year. Every every player must sit down as part of a, a workshop with them, where they outline that players players simply cannot bet on League of Ireland matches. It doesn't matter if you're Premier Division or First Division; you can't bet on either. If you're a player playing for a club in Europe, 
you can't bet on the Champions League this week or next week. That it's just those are the rules. They are that zero tolerance. This is far more serious than anything that's come up before. To my knowledge, it has gone further than anything has gone before. If we go, if this goes on further and we end up with a court case, it could get very serious reputationally already. It's not good for the League of Ireland mm-hmm. to have matches, you know, mentioned in the same breath as it all day today and probably all day tomorrow. I don't think it will have an impact on fans to be going this weekend anyway, but it will certainly make it harder to get okay. other fans to come. And that's their problem. That was Owen Kowser uh, from the Irish Sun. Uh, just to bring us up to date, Gavin, we have an update from that Green Party meeting of TDs um, around the sanctioning of NASA Horrigan and Patrick mm. Costello. What can you tell us? Uh, that's right. Just in the last few minutes, hearing from sources within the Green Party that the two TDs, NASA Horrigan and Patrick Costello, are going to have the party whip suspended for a period of six months each. Uh, so that will mean that neither of them will be formally considered as members of the Greens Parliamentary Party for the next six months, which, as Jared was just observing in the last few minutes, does mean that the Greens will not be members of their political parties uh, when the budget votes go through in October, which seems like a fairly inopportune time to be down yeah, a couple of people. A critical time. That's okay, the news this evening. There, there we'll have to leave it. Thank you for that, Gavin. Um, my thanks to Gavin, who, who joined us. The rest of my panel will be staying with us after the break. Massive changes are needed to save our climate, but how do we make the change and at what cost? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome back. Now, according to the World Meteorological Organization's annual report on the state of the global climate, four key climate change indicators broke records in 2021. It highlights how massive weather events took a heavy toll on lives and resulted in hundreds of billions of euro in economic losses, triggered shocks for food and water security. And it also noted an increase in extreme weather events here in Ireland. It's the latest warning that our time is running out. What should we all be doing and at what cost? Well, Gerard, Ruth and Lorraine are still with me and I'm also joined by environmental journalist John Gibbons. Um, you're welcome to the programme, John. John, just to bring us up to date, this is the latest warning from the World Meteorological Organisation. There's plenty of reports coming out and they're all painting the same picture of a really bleak future unless we take action. That's right. The situation really is, is, is getting very, very stark. Uh, the, this latest report, which looks back on 2021, uh, it's a year of climatic and climate-fueled weather extremes uh, with costs now running into hundreds of billions of euros. Now, this is important because we've often heard and continue to hear in some quarters that we cannot afford to act on climate. What, what this report is telling us, among other things, is that the cost of inaction mm. is exceeding any possible uh, costs related to taking climate action by by factors. It's really, there's simply no comparison. So that's what we're seeing. And this report, for example, follows the uh, Intergovernmental Panel report from a few months back. And again, it paints exactly the same picture. What we have is a ratcheting up of temperature. We know that globally, temperatures have risen by about 1.1 degrees centigrade uh, over pre-industrial. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but that is the largest single temperature shift in over 12,000 years. That's basically since the end of the last ice age. So we are kind of exiting the stable climatic period upon which we've built all our agriculture systems, our food systems, our civilizations have been built in this stable climatic period. And that period is ending really rapidly. And that, Claire, is the key message from the reports, both of the IPCC and also of the WMO. And they also highlighted extreme weather events here in Ireland in recent times that they say are down to climate change. Tell us about that. Sure. Uh, for 2021, they identified uh, one drought, uh, which is in late May, two heat waves, one in May and one in June, two severe storms. Uh, there was Storm Arwen, which is in November, and Storm Barra in December. Now, as we know, Severe weather is not new. We've, 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 all, we've all had it. But what we're finding is that extreme weather events are ratcheting up in Ireland, as they are, as we would expect them to be globally. Because, for example, uh, average surface temperatures in Ireland are increasing at the rate of about 0.2 degrees per decade, which, of course, is in line with uh, the global figure. So we've risen by over a degree centigrade in 50 years. Now, every degree centigrade, Again, it doesn't sound like a lot. That adds 7% additional precipitation, additional moisture to the atmosphere. And that means that the weather events, particularly the precipitation and flooding events, are getting much more severe. This is also, of course, coming on the back of rising sea levels, mm. coastal inundation. That means that we've got more water coming at us. Okay. Um, 
it is a stark warning. It's about what's happening now, Lorraine, as well as what's likely to happen into the future. And the government is being accused of tinkering around the edges and not doing a huge amount on this. What, what's the government afraid of? I, I would agree with John. It's very, very grim reading. Um, and we've all experienced the extreme weather events and John outlined them there. We all have to transition away from uh, a carbon dependent society. And the, the government have put forward uh, a just transition fund to move the Midlands. They're the first uh, area in this country that are really transitioning away from peat extraction for um, energy. Uh, so that there is a lot being done by the government to ensure that we decarbonise our society. We need to do more, however. Yeah, just one example now are the recent turf wars and what happened there. I mean, you could say that on that one, you know, there was a lot of political fire over that and that's what that's, caused a whole pullback on yeah. when we're going to do this and how we're going to do this, maybe without looking at what's going on in the world. That particular... Um, issue in relation to turf related to ordinary families who are just extracting a small bit of uh, turf for their own personal use. We're moving ahead with the transition away from uh, commercial peat extraction in this country in the coming months. And that's very, very significant. It's a difficult balance for government though, isn't it? When we talk it, about, and John has mentioned the cost issue there, that it, the, the cost of doing nothing mm -hmm. will essentially cost us a whole lot more. Those families that traditionally depended on turf are transitioning themselves away but, but from it. But generally as a political matter, like we were talking about the Greens now and the yeah. decision that's been made to, to remove um, and the whip and, and where that'll bring, bring us up when these climate measures that they so desperately want to see going through and, and how that might impact on them. You know, is there a reluctance in government to we, take the action that's required now. We desperately want them to go ahead as well. It's it's wrong to paint this as the Green Party and government pushing things and that we're all opposed to it. I know my colleagues uh, are as in favour of these measures uh, as anybody else in government. And we will be transitioning. We have already. The government okay. have put a, a good transition plan in place and we will be doing more. OK, um, just on all of this, and look, we've even seen the government campaigns of late uh, that reduce your use and the idea that we all do our bit um, to, to help in this. Do you, do you think that's a good message um, from government to give, that we can all think about how changes that we can make and maybe prepare for the fact that things are going to cost more if we're going to make those changes needed to save the planet? I mean, the, the key driver of climate change is fossil fuels and agribusiness and capitalism as a, as a system overall. And what's really obvious is that there's no political will to tackle this on the part of world leaders uh, and on the part of uh, our, our leaders either. Since the Paris Agreement, the investment in the fossil fuel industry actually went up by 4.8 trillion. It's incredible. And investment in renewables went down simply because it's not profitable enough for, for these companies to, to participate in it. And I think that shows you the scale of the problem we have, which is why the young generation in particular, obviously COVID has disrupted the protest movement that was taking place, but have displayed a passion and a principle that's been trying to force, you know, world leaders, force system change. Obviously, I think individuals mm. have to participate in this, but we need radical action. And in Ireland, the kind of thing that we need is like the 20% decrease in fares, for example, already had an impact on people's behaviour. People have started increasingly using public, public transport, transport. But it should be completely free. You know, 
Like that's the, se the it's the second biggest cause of carbon emissions in Ireland is transport behind but, agriculture. So actually, instead of talking about sort of personal cost to the individual, we should be making it all far more accessible. It is a big problem. And, you know, something Ruth mentioned there about agribusiness. Mm. We had uh, Leo Vradkar and he, earlier this month, he was at a Fine Gael conference on agriculture in rural Ireland. And he said, no farmer is going to be told to stop farming or to reduce the size of herd in order to meet exacting climate change targets, that they would adopt sensible measures to achieve the government target of a 51% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. Um, and essentially saying, look, don't worry, reassuring to farmers, but it's, it's the politics around this, isn't it? Because yeah. in order to kind of affect change and to reduce this, the, 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 the global warming that we are, we are seeing, those big decisions have to be made around agriculture, don't they? Absolutely. I and mean, if you take uh, your point about, you know, it's down to fossil fuels, uh, agribusiness and, and capitalism generally, uh, the reason that is a, a truth is, of course, capitalism as a system has mass adherence. Uh, we have benefited, we want, we demand the cheap food policies uh, that laden our supermarket shelves with almost infinite variety. Uh, how many of us, by the way, can get undressed tonight uh, and not look at our clothes as contributing where they have been manufactured, how they have been manufactured, at prices that are ridiculously low, at a cost to the environment that is unsustainable? How many of us will get up tomorrow morning and open our fridge to take out the variety of things that are stuffed into it and realise we haven't contributed. So these, these things about fossil fuels and capitalism, it's because of mass demand, mass adherence. So do you accept with that, you know, Ruth, with all of that, that if we are going to, you know, clamp down on that element, we, we are going to pay more for food and those food price rises and, and other things that, that are available at, at a relatively reasonable cost to people say at the moment, and not to everyone of course with the cost of living crisis, are going to go up because of, because of the world that we're living in. Well, for, before the war in Ukraine, food prices were increasing because of climate change, because it was contributing to droughts, you know, to disruption of the food chain itself. So the idea that we can maintain the system of capitalism that. and cheap food I would disagree with, with Gerard. I think people are often the recipients rather than the active, you know, orchestrators or participants. I think if you, you look you at go, any supermarkets... No, but you go into a... Well, actually, take supermarkets. You mm. go in, you've no control over it. You want to buy mushrooms. It's impossible to do it without a, a load of plastic around it. And, and that, that suits big business and it suits the supermarkets, to, you know, to, in order for longevity. So we need systemic change. There... Individual change, mm. even if we all cut our showers, cut all of those mm. things, which I'm not in favour of people being wasteful, it's not going to have the dramatic impact that is needed. Very, very shortly in this country, the first significant step in moving from talk to walk will be to publish of second of sectoral carbon budgets. And I promise you, Claire, a lot of people doing a lot of talking won't walk. And I think that would be the political crux. It's coming very who's, shortly. In other words, not going to walk? I, I think a lot of people who are demanding action on climate will not support plans that are tough either on agribusiness or are tough on consumers uh, who uh, will bring... Are you talking about Lorraine's party now? Are you talking I about think there will be the pressures. I think there will be there. pressures within Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, And I think there will be acute pressure in terms of the opposition and Sinn Féin and others who are going to pick holes in this and find ways of opposing it rather than supporting it. Yeah, that's the truth of the matter, Lorraine. 
Claire, just at a time when we're talking about food security, I think we need to just look at our own agricultural industry and support it. And we're, our agricultural industry have been actually operating to very high standards and they have reduced their carbon um, output. So I think we need to approach it in a sensible fashion. We need to be more sustainable in this country from a food point of view. Right. Okay, John, what, what do you think when you're hearing all of that and the yeah. carbon budgets and politically the difficulty that that may pose? What would yeah. be your message on that? I'd like to start with, uh, Lorraine, um, the agricultural industry has not reduced its carbon output. It has increased between 2010 and 2020. It's gone up by 12%, Lorraine. That's not a reduction. Uh, they're talking about efficiency, but the gross carbon emissions from this sector has, have increased by one-eighth in the last decade. It is a catastrophic policy failure. And this is a failure that was begot at a political level. And farmers, by the way, are acting rationally in this crazy expansion, particularly of the dairy sector. They're acting rationally in response to market signals set by flawed government policy. And there's no point in saying, uh, well, actually, we're doing quite well. We're actually doing really super bad. In fact, at the moment, the government is now talking about paying dairy farmers to please stop polluting. So we've got a situation where you pay them on the way up and now we're looking to pay them on the way down again. Yeah, um, and sort of on that, I mean, there is a strong lobby there, but obviously farmers are going to argue that, you know, we've got livelihoods to preserve. We, we, we even hear it from the opposition when they say, you know, talking about small family farms and they brought all of that into play sure. um, with re recent decision um, making around this. Um, you can't actually have climate change, stop climate change unless you have climate justice. You know, people can't actually implement things that will look at the cost of living. You know, how can you possibly say to people that they must pay more for food than they're already paying? So this is why the profit system is so incapable of actually tackling this. Um, and I, I think some of the things that could be done, like the retrofitting programme, which uses up a lot of energy, does come from... How, that's because people's houses are so badly built. Um, but what you need is about 20 or 30 grand in order to participate in the retrofitting programme. Right. And we also, something like a four-day week, they, they piloted right. it as cut emissions 20%. Well, on that note, we will be talking about remote working and uh, how the work life has changed for people in the past couple of years and how it's likely to change into the future. We'll be looking at that in the next part of the programme. Um, my thanks to Gerald Howland and the rest of the panel will be staying with us to talk about that after the break.
Welcome back. New government research has suggested that workers could save hundreds annually by working from home and that it also has benefits for employers and for the environment. But is it all it's cracked up to be? Joining the panel is CEO of Dublin Town, Richard Guiney and Ruth Coppinger, Lorraine Clifford Lee and John Gibbons are still with me. And Richard, to you first, um, it is getting more popular to work from home, to work remotely. Are we seeing a very changed landscape now in our towns and our city centres? Well, I think we were going to anyway. Um, I think what COVID has done is accelerated trends that we were going to see. Um, so what we're, we're, we're seeing in terms of the office workers are, is the, the advent of the, the hybrid model. Um, we're certainly seeing it in footfall patterns in Dublin city centre. So we're about 85% of the kind of levels of footfall we would have seen in 2019. But at the weekends, we're pretty much back to where we were midweek down 20%, 25%. So you can see that it's the, the people who would have been coming into work and then would have spent time in the city. Uh, they're obviously absent and, and that is having an impact then on, on, on trade overall. Yeah, how's it playing out, that midweek slump? Yeah, look, it, it is. You, you, you see restaurants not opening for lunch um, and you, the, the big push that we used to see uh, at lunchtime, particularly on Tuesdays, uh, that's not there anymore. So it is impacting overall on, on trade. There's a, there's a definitely discernible uh, impact. And, and businesses you represent would have workers on the shop floor. They must find this whole working from home concept and all this talk about it comical. Well, obviously, uh, if you're if you're in a face to face business, you know you you are at work. Um, so it is uh, you know there is that kind of, I suppose that divergence. But we're we are seeing you know a trickle back. So I mean the, the, there is a the the the, the figures uh, would show that we are seeing some return. Um, and the kind of figures that we're, we're hearing are that we're about 40% occupancy in offices. And interestingly, there's a very strong pipeline for uh, offices in the city still. Um, so it, it, it would suggest that employers still see that the office is going to be part of the overall package. This research also suggests that an, it, it's, it would save employers hundreds of millions of euro to have workers working from home rather than taking up office space that they no longer need to rent, um, Ruth. But I mean, with all of this, does it put service jobs and those face-to-face -face jobs at risk if more people are, are working from home and you're getting an increasingly divisive working society? Yeah, I think that there's so many issues around this. I think obviously a lot of workers um, valued the fact that they weren't sitting in cars commuting um, and could work from home. But there are obvious downsides, um, the potential uh, atomization of the workforce, if you like, in terms of trade union organization. Uh, but also what's happened has Explain been- Explain that to me, that, that you mean people are working from home, they're, they're, they're not kind of gathering together. Together, they're not you know, able in numbers. to talk to their, right. their workmates. You know, they're not able to organize if they need to organize. Um, but having said that, I think it has been a positive for a lot of people. And what's happened is that it should be a right of somebody to, to ask. <laughs> well, the, the government is making it, you have the right to ask, but your boss has a right to say no. Mm. So it's not really a right at all. And I think another this thing that's happened- This is the legislation yeah, now that is now is in draft form. The length of the working day and what's happened with a lot of people, like say in teaching, where I was teaching throughout the pandemic um, and you know frontline or whatever, but people are now doing two roles. So you're doing online, and you're doing direct face-to-face, -face, and that's kind of being maintained. 
Uh, many people would say, you know, this really suits employers as well, because when you're working from home, you're putting in longer hours by default, the right to switch off and that whole argument that's been made, not just here in Ireland, but other countries have legislated around it. Um, it it's, very, it's very difficult increasingly for workers and this new legislation, which aims to look at how working from home will, will potentially benefit employees, doesn't give them as many rights as it should, Lorraine. I suppose it's a partnership between the employer and the employee. It benefits the employee to a certain extent and the employer. So it's about working out and having a good working environment. And in, there is an obligation on the employer if, they're, if they have members of their team that are working remotely, that they check in with them, check their welfare, make sure that they're not uh, being overworked and that they are switching off in the evening, that they are taking time for a lunch break in the middle of the day. And that's really, really important that there is a good working culture, even though you're not in the office. Um, like Ruth said, there, there, there are some downsides to um, working remotely. And I think for women in particular, um, it, it, I think it might impact on career progression for women. I, I think a lot of women undertake a lot of um, household duties and that kind of burden to actually work remotely. So you could be around to pick kids up from school and do housework uh, would fall more on them. And sometimes when you're in a corporate structure, when you're out of sight, you're out so of mind you as well. That? I think it, it's a challenge for, for both workers and employers and employers who, if they value their workers, they will come to a, a mutually agreeable arrangement that perhaps a, a hybrid situation might suit that person. Mm. Um, but it is very important that people have the opportunity to engage positively and that people do have access to the benefits of working from home. Um, one of the big things in this is, you know, the, the report, the research, I think that was Department of Enterprise, so it was the government's own research on this, saying you could save 304 euro a year. Um, and a lot of that, it's obviously the commuting costs because it's over 400 euro you're saving annually on commute costs. Many people would think, do you know what? It's even actually would cost me an awful lot more than that at the, with the cost of fuel at the moment to get me to and from work. So there is a positive um, environmental impact to this as well, isn't there, John? What are your views on it? Yeah, I think it's probably there's swings and roundabouts because, OK, um, you obviously avoid uh, commuting, which is, of course is a good thing. On the other hand, it also means that a lot of, of uh, houses are going to be running mm -hmm. their heating system all day long. And I think it's important as well that employers are cognizant of that because that could end up becoming, if you like, a stealth cost transferred from employers to employees. So when I hear employers talking about we're going to save all these millions in getting rid of office space, office space provides the functions and services and heat and so on. Uh, and that could be very easily offshored to employees. So I do think that's important. You may have heard the phrase that some people, they're not so much that they're working at home, but that they're living in the office, right? That idea, essentially, that the, there's no escape from work. And I think for most of us, it is important to have a buffer between our, our, our workplace and our domestic life. And I think uh, that has been alluded to. Lorraine made that point that this can also fall particularly uh, on, on women, where uh, in, in the domestic situation, they end up kind of old habits can creep back in. Do you think, Richard, we're jumping the gun on this legislation a bit, that we should wait and see how the work pattern starts evolving, what people end up doing and, and where it all goes before we bring in laws, or are they needed now to protect the worker? Yeah, no, I, I, I do think we're probably jumping the gun uh, a wee bit. Um, and like certainly one of the things that uh, people within office environments, uh, that we do have members in office environments, 
that they're saying they're, they're missing is just particularly with young uh, staff, you know, they need that training and they learn from uh, the, their, their more mature colleagues. That's missing. And that's something that uh, is definitely coming across to us. Um, and it's also just, you know, the, that whole, as, as, as has been mentioned, the whole mental health aspect of actually interacting ha with people. Um, so there, there are definitely uh, downsides as well. All right, there we'll have to leave it. That is it from us. My thanks to our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.